Welcome to the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. Welcome back. I'm here with Brett Wells of Perceptics. Brett, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Al. Thanks for having me today. Of course. Thanks for joining me. Now, you're in Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah, it's an interesting time of year here in April. So yesterday I was out on the golf course, and today we're expected to get a few inches of snow here. So I didn't expect that. I put my snowblower away, and I'm going to have to get that back out. Obviously, Lincoln a uh, large I.O. community. There's a bunch of firms that have been in and out of there over the years. you mind sharing with our listeners who you are and you know, how you end up joining Perceptics? Yeah, great question. So like you said, I'm an industrial organizational psychologist. I've really devoted my life's mission to making the world of work just a little bit better. And I do that via people analytics. And I've been doing that over about the last 10 years. And Really excited to join Perceptics here just a couple of months ago to continue to lead our efforts on people analytics. We really have an ambitious vision and mission to really revolutionize this industry that, as you know, is becoming more and more crowded and a lot of great people doing great things. But it's been an exciting journey so far and really looking forward to continue and accelerate. Yeah, I have to compliment Perceptics as a firm because they've been around from one perspective a very long time in the employee survey, employee engagement space. There's been a lot of consolidation over the years. So the fact that they have been able to innovate and contribute in meaningful ways that their clients value testament to ship and the creativity that you all have employed. And your role there is actually bringing people analytics alive to a greater extent. Is that right? That's right. Yes. So I'm the director of people analytics. And, you know, as you said, Perceptics has a rich history, really being first in the market to look at real-time analytics, to do continuous listening. And we just continue to keep amping up our efforts in terms of what's next, what could be next in terms of our own continuous improvement and what we're adding value to our clients. Now, one of the things that we talked about in preparation for our discussion today was the people analytics journey, because right now, you know, COVID-19, there's a lot of people analytics leaders and the function itself has gained a lot of positive press. There's good stories. However, there's a lot of work been done over the years to actually get to this stage. And we just jump right in there. What does the people analytics journey look like to you? Jesus, it really runs the gamut. And like you said, it's definitely a journey. Our approach at Perceptics and the one that I've always adopted is try to meet clients where they're at. So it's really unfair to say that every organization should have a people analytics practice or compare themselves to Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon. What works for one organization could be completely different than another. And I think that's really important to recognize and really to start a journey from there. In addition, many make the mistake of betting the farm right out of the gate when they start up a people analytics practice. And I can really get enamored by that vision as well. I mean, who doesn't want 10x improvement instead of 10% improvement? But I think back to the inaugural moonshot, so really landing people on the moon and bringing them back safely. But it took so many attempts or so many little missions up until that point before you really hit the moonshot. So with people analytics, the approach that I think on that journey that often results in the best ends is starting with a lot of small wins. So trying to tackle those problems that are going to add a lot of value to the business, but really don't add too much complexity or layers of complexity. There's not a lot of dependencies or contingencies on getting things done. 
that also helps build up a great deal of credibility within the organization. If you bet the farm out of the gate and fail, well, that's likely the last big project that you're going to work on across departments. You're going to be relegated to the basements of the organization to run pet projects and ad hoc reporting. And that almost adds less value than not having a practice at all. So it's a lot of ways to make a mistake out of the gate. Many organizations fail on that. It dawns on me as you're sharing this, just to run with the concept of placing a bet. Many decision makers, HROs, heads of talent, those in analytics COE have placed their bet, in other words, allocated their budget with a technology first point of view. I'm going to look for the right technology, which has arguably underappreciated the decision-making processes that need to be matured, as well as a data strategy. Because there's, again, there's a presumption that if I have data, it's going to tell me the story that I want or need to know. So can you speak to your views on the kind of holistic approach that needs to be considered when placing these bets? Yeah, absolutely. So first, I think you bring up good points on data. And when I think of data, um, I think of all the V's of data and how they're increasing so much right now. So whether it's the volume of data, so thinking of all access of data we have now as HR professionals, the variety of data that we get, both within the people side as well as the operational side, the speed or the velocity um, that those data come in. And then the most important point, I think, is the veracity of the data. So how clean is it? How much work or massaging has to be done with it? And often decisions are made just on what's easily available with that Mm -hmm. data, as opposed to really thinking strategically and thinking about what do I really need from a data perspective to make these decisions? So, for example, turnover is a hot button for most professionals. And nearly every organization can report out on here's their turnover metric and potentially here's what involuntary versus voluntary looks like. And it gets all very descriptive, but they don't really have a clear understanding of why. They just have a gut feeling if it's too high or maybe even too low. But with the data strategy and thinking about what are our own hypotheses of what's driving this and how could we answer those questions by either collecting data or getting access to other data that we already are likely sitting on to answer those questions. So, you know, thinking more first from the business problem, what are we trying to solve? What data are available? What additional data do we need to bring to the table? The technology aspect, of course, is incredibly important. You want to have a robust platform that is going to answer those questions. And not just for the data wonks like myself, you know, working in R or Python, but then also disseminating that knowledge into a platform that's easy for the critical mid-level manager to digest and act on appropriately and have them be felt that they're still involved in that decision-making process. No one wants to be told what to do. They want to have that decision-making power. So, you know, I think right now it's an interesting place where technology and design thinking and a data strategy, a data governance strategy, all of these things tie together to inform what's next for a people analytics practice. And also what's next, I just add, is very much the people on the team, the diversity of talent that you're bringing in, having the analytics professionals, having even developers to put it into production, having data visualization experts, storytellers, communicators, having the personas being part of the design. That's really the route to success. It's not to put it all on one person's plate where they might have incredible data science background, but is not really an expert in the problem that they're tackling. 
Yeah, I love what you're sharing for a variety of reasons. I'll focus on one aspect that I think can resonate with our listeners straight away is I often ask, you know, what's the number one reason people leave organizations? And nine out of 10 times, we'll say, well, <laughs> yeah, they're a media manager. And then, well, how do you know that research was based on something Gallup did years ago? And, you know, they may not be true. However, there is a need to go and discover what's true for your population or segments of your population at that particular time. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, that requires a data strategy. That means asking the right questions at the right time and in the right ways. Is that how you see it when you talk about a data strategy? Yeah, absolutely. And certainly going in with a clear understanding of the problem, you really have to fall in love with the problem that you're trying to solve. Uh, I love Einstein's quote where, and I'm paraphrasing, but you know, if I had an hour to save the world, I'd spend 59 minutes on the problem, one minute on the solution. And what I would say that the mistake that I certainly made earlier in my career and the mistake that I find myself slipping into even now is ultimately or quickly jumping to solutions as opposed to really understanding the problem. You know, as consultants, we want to come in with, here's the answer to the million dollar problem or the question. One memory comes to mind for me, I was working with a healthcare organization that said for them, turnover was hot button. And if we could predict it, it's going to save so much money. And I asked, just throw me over the kitchen sink of data and I'll find something. And I augmented it with all this other data and found a really interesting finding around commute times and how commute times were highly predictive of nursing turnover. And there was an interesting kind of boundary when I looked at it visually on the map uh, created by the Potomac River. And if nurses had to cross the river to get to work and pay a toll, they were twice as likely to leave the organization. And when I shared this with the executive team, they said, well, we always thought we had an issue with recruiting over in that area. You know, thanks for bringing it to our attention. That's interesting. But that's where it failed. They didn't say like, well, geez, can we implement a rideshare program? Could we give money back for the commute and the tolls? So they didn't move to action. So now before ever tackling any analytics project, I always ask the decision makers and the sponsor, what decision are you looking to make with these data? Is it just analysis for analytics sake, or are you really going to try to leverage this to make a smarter, a wiser decision? And when I start there, I feel that those projects like the, isn't it interesting that, 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 that have really stopped and you're seeing that leaders are leveraging those data to really drive action and make decisions. I have some that I've been using over the years called the data to change process. And the data might be strong, but actually getting to drive change has in many organizations been the tough piece because the governance structure in place, the decision-making bodies, because in your example, you hired rideshare. Who would that involve? Potentially facilities and you know, transportation, wherever that might live. It could be conversation if there's you know reimbursement. So are you seeing, are you advocating that these decision-making boss, governance boards, whatever you want to call them, be diverse and be multifunctional to make sure the insight lands with the right people at the right time? Yeah, well, you know, it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition. If you want to go fast in the analytics space, it's certainly better to go alone. You can get to the results faster, the answers quicker, but if you want it to be sustainable, if you want to go far with a practice, the more stakeholders you bring into the table and having them be key decision makers, influencers in that process, 
it's going to be a slower run, but I guarantee it's going to last the test of time and all the struggles that come up along these analytics journeys. I like it. And I couldn't agree more. What do you think, particularly with COVID-19 being front and center right now, what do you think is happening with people analytics teams that might not be as mature? They might not be agile and responsive. They're at an earlier stage of their journey. What do you think is going to happen or what would you advocate that they do over the next weeks and months to establish themselves and build the mind share among executives so those organizations can make better decisions moving forward? That's a great question. And the COVID-19 pandemic has created uh, you know, certainly a great deal of disruption across all industries. And it, even within the analytics space today, most businesses have essential workers who require protection. Like some of our clients, like Comcast, they're technicians. They're still going out to homes and installing services or CVS uh, client, their workers are still on the front lines uh, providing great services to their customers. Whereas some clients are determining who do we need to lay off or furlough. Others are going through massive hiring right now in terms of certain retailers and certainly online retailers or grocery stores. So all of those different things that COVID-19 has caused as consequences. People analytics can certainly lend insights into how to go about making the best decisions in these uncertain times. My recommendation would be kind of look at the business that you're in right now in the short and long term and what are the decisions that leaders are making kind of in the moment and how could you inform those decisions with data or even by collecting new data. So one thing that we're offering uh, Perceptics is thinking of all this disruption. It's a variety of surveys that are open to our clients, open to prospects, or really any potential client that might be interested in participating to really get a pulse from the perceptions of their employees. How is working at home? Today, myself, I played the role of, you know, the people analytics professional, but for about an hour, I was bouncing around and wearing multiple hats between being a dad, a husband, a teacher for a first grade classroom, a short order cook for lunch, you know, burning the grilled cheese. So, you know, it really runs the gamut in terms of what people working at home are dealing with right now. Mm-hmm. There's no better way to get a sense of what people are dealing with than to just ask ask the right questions, listen, and then respond. Employees are hungry to give that right now. And I think every leader wants those insights in terms of what to do next. I would hope, and I'm seeing many asking, and it's great when they have systems and processes in place that can provide that in a very quick and agile way. If they don't, obviously they're arguably flying blind. With you, and again, person general being rooted in IO psychology, just asking the question has value. Is that right? So being thoughtful about what questions you're asking, not only the fact that you do it, but in the manner that you do it, and to your point to emphasize, to actually take action and communicate that action on the back end. Is that how you view it? Yeah, there's certainly power in simply asking the question. I think there's even more power in responding after the results are known. And with today, we've been conditioned to expect immediate response. Everything is so quick. What used to take us weeks or months can now be completed in the matter of minutes at most. And employees, once they give their responses, are expecting something in return. So 
I would just caution that asking for asking's sake could be detrimental. It's the organizations that ask and respond that are really showing the highest form of empathy. Sympathy, I think, is what you're showing by just asking the question. But empathy, putting some action behind it, is what I think the best organizations are doing right now, driving their strategy bottom up from people's sentiment and and perceptions and, and really trying to change that. One of our client partners has been tracking how their corporate communications, especially from senior leadership, when and the type of the message has impacted the sentiment of the organization. And it's clear that both groups want to communicate more and communicate effectively. And when that happens, you see that they're having trust in leadership. They know that the organization cares about their health and safety, and they have the confidence that they're going to get through this unprecedented time. I like that you use the word confidence because obviously that's something that is needed now. And some organizations are able to instill that level of confidence better than others for a variety of reasons, their business model, where they're located and so forth. However, if there is this dialogue with the workforce, then the level of confidence that, hey, we're going to get through this or, hey, I feel that leaders are seeing me struggle in my home, juggling all this stuff, and they're going to take appropriate action. So my question to you is, this screams, at least to me, being attentive to the worker experience or employee experience. And that takes a more holistic, temporal view where you're looking at touch points, someone's day-to-day you know, over the course of time. Number one, is that how you're thinking about you know, staging your data? And again, in us talking in past, you have a lot of work in, for lack of a better term, linkage research, or for those who are geeking out, you know, causal pathway analysis or structured equation modeling to understand and you know, nudge here what's the downstream input. Again, if we don't take that holistic view, that's not going to be possible. So can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, time is one of the most important variables that we can look at as people analytics professionals. Doing a point-in-time study, traditional type of linkage research, and I'm reminded by my first stats professor that says correlation does not mean causation, and you get further away from that concern when you're looking at year-over-year data and that you can conclusively demonstrate that changes in engagement are what's really leading to changes in customer satisfaction or financial performance. There is a certainly a positive flywheel effect, but the temporal staging of those different variables really matters. So right now, it's going to be really interesting from that perspective as so many workers are displaced from working within the traditional corporate America skyscrapers. One of my dear friends works at a large technology company. He mentioned to me in passing that they had a three-year plan to go completely digital. So for their customer service employees could plug in on any strong network and have great customer calls and whether it's through sales or service. And they sped that up to three weeks. So what they had a plan for three years, all of a sudden it's three weeks. So I can imagine that the world of work looks entirely different right now for those employees as it does, for example, for me. So I think Right now, it's during these unprecedented times, I wouldn't be overly concerned with kind of the point in time. I think what will be even more interesting is looking at kind of the downstream consequences of what's going to happen because of this. You know, certainly there's going to be a lot of residue and overarching effects that continue to change the world of work. Looking at how organizations with more people working from home, 
but with different stressors or inhibitors to their success in these times? How do you stay connected in this virtual world when we have so much competing for attention right now? You know, as I said, I was dad, short order cook, teacher, employee, all in one day. After kids go back to the school, at least I can check one of those off for at least eight hours of the day. It's going to open a whole host of research questions for people, analytics professionals and teams to answer but I wouldn't be overly concerned with just one point in time. It's good to look at the whole landscape, this whole overarching effect. I love what you're saying. And it invites the question from my perspective. And as researchers, we know this, yet others who don't have research backgrounds, they might have real strong technology dashboard building backgrounds might not necessarily be aware of this or certainly practiced at it. And certainly others who might be HR business partners might not either. And again, I say this compassionately. I don't say it as a level of criticism, just understanding our sets of experiences and what we bring to the fore. In doing those research questions and socializing them and getting ideas on what questions we should be asking, therein invites data that can help answer those questions. And if you're now looking six, 12 months down the road to see how we're going to exit this and achieve a new normal, correct me if I'm wrong, we should start thinking about the questions that we will be asking at that point in time and have that inform the questions we ask now. And maybe some of the questions we'll be asking in the future, of course, leaving room for iteration. So how do you think about that assertion and what would you like to add there? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, at least Some of the questions that have floated through my mind with more and more organizations now open to telecommuting, working from home, you know, the organization that I shared, a Fortune 500 organization that took a three-year plan down to three weeks. Um, I imagine many of those people are still going to work from home after the pandemic. What type of consequences is that going to have for kind of the footprint or the carbon footprint for organizations? The carbon footprint for us as employees, like not going to have to travel to work every day. The, I have a really short commute from the bedroom to the working desk here. It's only you know, a handful of feet away. So that's certainly going to have a huge impact. Certainly lots of industries are going to be impacted by that. I think of many organizations that own and lease property, these mega corporations, like to what extent are they going to not renew those and have just as large, if not larger workforce, but one that doesn't need that office space. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of how is collaboration going to be impacted by this. You know, the interesting thing is there's so much data collected by platforms like Zoom or, you know, like our call right now or Slack, that organizational network analysis is going to be open to a next level where everybody is forced to use these tools, not just the tech teams. So there's certainly a lot of questions that are going to come out as a result of this. And we'll just, you know, unfortunately have to kind of wait and see what actually happens. But Those are the types of questions I guess I'm asking now to think about what data should we have already or get available to start answering those. So again, taking issue, which I think is a fantastic insights and ideas, there are a host of assumptions in there or hopes where the people analytics leader has the relationship equity with the senior leaders within HR and potentially outside of HR. You mentioned IT. There needs to be collaboration, correct me if I'm wrong, with IT, those managing the slacks of the world with this data that we might collect through a survey, certainly core HR data, potentially learning data. So anyway, the complexity can get pretty vast quickly. So what are your thoughts, not only around the governance around 
the decision-making downstream, but setting this up, who do you see as the key collaborators to make a people analytics function thrive? You know, importantly, first and foremost, I think it does reside within HR as they are responsible for the people experience, the employee experience, mm-hmm. you know, having those deep and wide relationships kind of across the organization in terms of technology. I don't know any HR professional that chose to go into the space because they're enamored by tech or did so well in math at school or anything you, like you don't. <laughs> it's yeah. How do you complement the strengths of the HR team by those that are already around you and making it not just an HR strategy, but really a business strategy that trickles across every aspect of the business? Those teams can tackle some really interesting problems. So one uh, healthcare organization I work with, their people analytics team that traditionally was relegated to looking at HR data, et cetera, they were looking at time of day effects day of the week effects, et cetera, on ER wait times and basically doing an optimization problem. How can we effectively schedule staff and how much staff based on what we're predicting our volume in the emergency department's going to be this coming week? So they have the right people to answer the questions, but they also need help from the physicians and nurses in terms of, well, what type of risk is there in these different types of cases that we're trying to predict? What's the impact of making a right versus wrong decisions? So that team was smart and really worked across the enterprise with a variety of stakeholders. They don't necessarily program it. So working with their internal tech team to really publish a dashboard so that the managers of those departments can really allocate resources ahead of time in terms of really filling that critical need. That's a great story. So I hear you, the people analytics or HR analytics was the facilitator of that project, whereas maybe operations or somebody else was the quote unquote sponsor or owner of that. Is that what I understood correctly? Yeah. Yeah. And do you see that being kind of the new, uh, I say new in quotes because I believe it's happening out there, but it's not the norm at least of yet. But would you put that forward as a practice for people as a facilitator of these broader projects that involve operations and IT and finance and others? Yeah, I think that's certainly a great route to go in particular because it's so costly to build up a people analytics practice. And you don't necessarily need an analytics practice for HR and for finance and for operations. And for one thing, it's about blending all those data pieces together and having expertise around each of them. The one caveat I would say is, at least what I've experienced is when kind of begging, borrowing, stealing from other areas in the organization where they might have analytics expertise, it's often your project that you know, is the first one to fall off the list of priorities. You know, everyone's yeah. competing for resources and time, but that's where really prioritizing kind of in a roadmap or even like following a scrub methodology in terms of what's most important and what are we working on as a team and being agile in terms of, well, after COVID-19, we could care less about this one analytics project. We have to answer this right now. So it's all hands right. on deck, drop this emergency department optimization problem, we really need to think about X, Y, or Z. 
And do you think that prioritization should happen exclusively within HR? Should there be a broader body that the people analytics leader is exposed to? Because I've seen two things. I've seen the people analytics leader have access to this broader community. And sometimes I've seen the CHRO have access to that broader community. And he or she then helps the people analytics prioritize. There's risks and benefits in, correct me if I'm wrong, but what would you advocate given that there's 85 dependencies here? <laughs> but, but what are your thoughts there? Yeah, you know, it's, I'm going to give the quintessential psychology answer that it depends. I think it really depends kind of on the HR professional and what they feel comfortable with, you know, in addition to the relationship capital that they have across the organization. For one that where it's weaker, I think it's a great olive branch to extend and try to build those relationships and rapport. Where it's strong, I think that's where it can be more of an informing relationship as opposed to you know, I need you to sign off on every single thing. So there's certainly that spectrum. I think, you know, what teams ultimately want to do is to really serve the business, but be able to move quickly and agile and answer the right questions and not be slowed down by kind of red tape or the bureaucracy of kind of running analytics. Because often, you know, the questions that we answer have big consequences and there's emotion involved. And for the analytically minded, they don't necessarily want to be involved in those pieces. That's certainly where the leadership has to be. But to answer it briefly, succinctly, it's really dependent on that organization and very much so that leader and the relationship capital they have across the organization. Right. And at the end of the day, would you agree that the number of layers between the decision maker and the people analytics leader should be minimum? Last thing we want to do is get in like the telephone you know, <laughs> thing we did in fourth grade, right? Where it gets up and down. And the good news is people analytics leader, at least I've seen and working with the Q22 and others, is that it's gotten higher. It's now director, senior director, sometimes VP level professional. But going back to the pointed question of those organizations that don't have a really senior level person who can command executive presence and confidence, would you advocate that they consider potentially either up-leveling somebody or getting somebody who has that internal equity to lead this function moving forward? Yeah, I think that's certainly one route to go. An additional route, an equally attractive route is to leverage analytics partners on the outside that bring that expertise and have a very clear understanding of what mm -hmm. other organizations that are maybe a little bit more mature are doing, as opposed to running with scissors right away. Let's first start crawl, walk, run. And those analytics firms, those consulting firms, such as Perceptics, can really help them on that journey to get those small wins, to gain the momentum before betting the farm and bringing on a new executive where you might not be at the right place maturity-wise, where it really even warrants it. I mean, it might just be kind of wasting money where you should be taking, you know, smaller steps to that. Yeah, Brett, we can talk all day on this. One of the things, though, as we start to wrap up here is the world of work. We have talked that it's changing significantly. We've touched on remote work. You know, how many employers are going to be hired vis-a-vis contractors, outsource providers, Dynamics are changing where employers were kind of subjected to the needs of critical talent. Now the power base is arguably swayed in many industries where, hey, gosh, I'm just lucky to have a job. So as we fast forward and think about the wake of COVID-19, what are some of the shifts that you see with people, data, and analytics? And how do you believe 
people are like professionals or HR leaders should be thinking about how to respond beyond what we've already talked about? Great question. So thinking of people analytics in the wake of COVID-19, I think that for organizations, the power of the role is only going to increase. So like the impact that it has and you know, almost see people analytics today is a nice to have for many organizations. For those organizations in the future, post COVID-19, when the new world of work where digital is critically important, people analytics is equally important. That people analytics team is almost going to have like the bat phone in the organization where a question comes up, critical question, they pick up the bat phone and there's your people analytics professional. And maybe they don't come to the rescue right away, but it's with getting the right data, augmenting that with additional data, putting some really sophisticated analysis around it and helping leaders you know, distill down out of all that noise what really matters to make the most critical decisions. So I only suspect that the number of people going into people analytics as a profession is going to increase, whether it's data science, business intelligence, IO psychology, the gamut of people that really play in this space. It's only going to increase and organization spend, both in terms of human capital and technology, is only going to increase as a result of this. You got me thinking about all kinds of cool gadgets people analytics professionals have, you know, a suit that's <laughs> you know, bulletproof and uh, obviously employing a lot of creativity and resourcefulness because obviously that's what we're going to have to do. So, hey, Brett, congratulations on what you have done over course of your career. Congratulations on what you all and Perceptix have been doing, not only for your clients, but for the broader community, because I know you've come to the floor and, and offered some insights and ideas on how anybody, uh, your clients and non-clients can move forward given what's happening in the world today. So yeah, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the Global People Analytics Network, please visit us at globalpeopleanalytics.net.